my SWAT commander that I was with, uh, he decided that they were going to put some suppression fire into the residence. My partner and I would run across the open backyard and, and pull the officer from the line of fire, uh, which was great. And, and then as soon as they started firing, we started running. Next thing I knew, I got to the downed officer and I could see the holes through the back door and was expecting to, to really start taking gunfire at any moment. Hey everyone, I'm Ricky Butler and you're listening to 56, a Pinellas County Sheriff's Office podcast. In fact, it is our first ever episode. I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, Laura Sullivan, who is going to be our kind of wrangler to make sure we stay on task. And Pretty awesome responsibility. That is a, a huge responsibility. Um, I feel like if this is the first episode, we need to do some introductory things like housekeeping things to give everybody some context and all good that idea. good stuff before we get our guest in here. So I think the obvious first step is what's the deal with the name Y56? Um, so law enforcement, as we all know, speaks in code, especially on the radio. There are sort of two different uh, predominant types of codes. There's signal codes, but then there are the 10 codes, which are more familiar. Uh, everybody's familiar with 10-4. I learned about 10 codes watching Smokey and the Bandit. So there's 10-4. Uh, there's 10-20, which is location. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, they vary agency by agency, but 1056 means meet or meet up, which I think is cool because that's exactly what we're planning to do with this. Right. So if you ever see two law enforcement vehicles parked uh, facing opposite directions with their driver's sides near each other and they're talking, they're 56ing. There it is. And Laura knows all this stuff. And now, now we're all civilians uh, before our guest comes in. So all of us here on the podcast, we're all civilians because that's really our primary audience, right? We want to make sure we're kind of bridging that gap. But right. Laura actually is unique. Uh, in many ways, but <laughs> particularly because she used to be a deputy here. A very, very long time ago. So I am rusty in some things, but a lot has come back to me. <laughs> come back to you. So we'll get, we'll get into that a little bit. But um, so, yeah, so, you know, people are, first of all, surprised to know that a large law enforcement agency like the Pinellas County Sheriff's Office has a full service PR team. Uh, but we are a large agency, the 15th largest sheriff's office in the U.S., mm-hmm. uh, and we have a standalone public relations bureau. Uh, and uh, particularly all of us here uh, that put together the podcast are members of the communications and public education team. And our job uh, for the agency is to get out in the community, get out there, you know, make those contacts and try to have those conversations in the community get the word out, the good word, of course, of the sheriff's office. So, you know, we do that in a lot of ways. You know, we're on social media. We have several publications. But one area that is kind of untouched, which is a whole different audience in some respects, are podcasts. And we have a lot of cool things to talk about. So um, we're excited uh, about this. We're even more excited that you all are joining us on our new adventure into podcasting. Um, But let's get into a little bit um, just kind of who we are and what we do. Uh, because I think that's important um, because, you know, we're going to be with you guys. We're going to welcome in great guests, but you need to know a little bit about us. So I do want to introduce, like I said, everybody uh, involved is on the communications public education team. And I'll start with the folks that are hiding in the back, not up on the mic, uh, which is going to be uh, Aaron Grudis, who is our senior graphics and multimedia specialist. Uh, Brennan Whipple, who is usually the guy behind the camera, but today he's behind the soundboard. Uh, and if you've ever seen a, a pretty cool video put out by the sheriff's office uh, that wasn't a very entertaining Instagram reel, uh, mm-hmm. If it was, you know, really high quality, good stuff, it's, there's a 100% chance uh, Brennan Whipple was behind the camera yeah. on that. So he is our technical advisor of all things. And, you know, he entertains our silly questions about how to make things work. So thank you, Brennan. Um, moving to up to the mic, the main table here, we have uh, Ashley Cooley, who is our social media communication specialist, who has a very important role uh, that we'll get to. But anything you want to say, Ashley? 
Nope, that's just a no. <laughs> yep. She, if, she, if, you're, if you're not following us on our various social media platforms, you really need to for, for her work. Just for Ashley. Yeah. Yep. What she does is amazing. But she has something very special to bring to the table for all of our guests. So we're looking forward to that. And then, of course, Laura, I will let you introduce yourself a bit. All right. Uh, my least favorite thing is talking about myself. Yes. But, uh, <laughs> I'm Laura Sullivan. I am. Yeah. Um, I'm a, 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 a what, what am I here? A public relations <laughs> public relations specialist. I don't say my title very often. But uh, 15 years ago, I was a deputy sheriff here at Pinellas County Sheriff's Office. Um, I left in 2007, and I did other things for 15 years. I was I was a novelist for 15 years, and then just uh, close on to a year ago, I came back here as a civilian, and working we, with you guys. And speaking of the novelist piece, so you know, part of it, and I'm getting ahead of myself, but but part of why we're doing this is. You know, we have a, a really awesome uh, bi-weekly e-newsletter that goes out, hits about close to 10,000 email inboxes uh, twice a month, uh, and it's called Inside the Star. And Laura is the primary writer uh, of all those great articles, and she really has a knack with her, uh, you know, novelist background. Mm -hmm. And she can go out and, and talk to deputies and get to know people and tell some incredible stories. So that was really what got us talking about this was because of the really great stories that Laura was writing. So thank you for that. Thank um, you. Last but not least, I can't forget myself. Uh, as I said, my name is Ricky Butler. I am the communications and public education manager. So I have the best job in the agency. Uh, there will be probably some folks uh, over several episodes we will get in here that I will argue with about who has the best job. But I have the best job because I have, of course, a, a great team, which I have, I'm obligated to say because y'all are staring at me. But also uh, because we get to get into a little bit of everything here. I mean, we really get to see uh, the entire agency in a way that nobody else does. And we get to go out and, and do things and learn about things because we have to understand it in order to communicate it to people. And that's what makes us kind of uniquely qualified to sit here as civilians for a law enforcement agency and talk about what they do and, and bring members in and learn right. because... You know, that, we have to know all that. So I've been here um, for about 10 years um, and love every day of it. Uh, our team overall, we have uh, some great, a lot of fun responsibilities. Um, two primary areas of responsibility. We oversee uh, all of the traditional PR type communications like correspondence, social media, uh, graphics and multimedia, things we've talked about. Uh, all those traditional responsibilities outside of media relations because we have our friends at the Public Information Office, which are also part uh, of the Bureau. Uh, we have three uh, sections within the Public Relations Bureau, so Public Information Office is one of them. We are another, and then there's Crime Prevention and Community Awareness, uh, which goes out and is teaching in the community about various uh, safety trends, things like that. But uh, communication, public education, the other half of what we do, the education piece, is we are responsible responsible for all of the agency's public education programs and special events. Um, we have a lot of great opportunities for the public, whether they want to spend a couple minutes reading a newsletter, whether they want to come to a, a meeting of the Citizens Association and learn about something interesting, maybe commit more time for the Sheriff Citizens Academy and get some fun hands-on opportunities. That's just, you know, that's what we're all about. So again, that's why a podcast is natural because it's kind of a new way to connect and, and get out there. So Thank you all for humoring me with that and talking about ourselves a bit. I know it's, it's hard to do, but it's, it's kind of what we need to do. So um, before we get our guest in here, uh, let's kind of talk about what we're going to get into, the sort of things we're hoping to do with this podcast. Um, you know, something that Laura said initially when we were planning that stuck out is, you know, we want to get the facts and the personality. And, and one thing that law enforcement is constantly uh, trying to do, or at least should be trying to do, is find ways to connect and relate and, and make sure that everybody knows that while, you know, law enforcement officers and corrections, you know, deputies are they're wearing uniforms, 
but they're still people and they have cool stories and and things and and personality and their own lives and hobbies and all those things. So we're going to, we're going to bring guests in. Um, We're going to choose something that's hopefully timely, something that's definitely interesting. And we're going to bring them in and we're going to learn about who they are first as people, because that's the most important thing. We're going to learn about their job and what they do. Probably get some, you know, uh, information and tips that can keep you safer based on what they're telling us and and things of that nature. Something you're going to learn something. Uh, and tell stories and, and hopefully have a lot of fun along the way because that's, that's what it's all about. It's certainly, if you've ever participated in one of our public education programs, you know that we are about having fun because, you know, listen, we've all been in school. We've all been, you know, those formative years in, in you know, middle school where you really excelled at a top, at a, a, a subject. Well, why? Mm-hmm. Because you had a teacher or somebody that made it engaging, made it interesting, and then you learn something. Because if you're having fun, you're definitely learning. So that's what we're going to try to do. This is not going to be your traditional law enforcement podcast. There are other agencies that have great podcasts. There are some agencies that have podcasts that are like, we're just doing it because we need to. And it's just the sheriff talking or the head of the agency talking. And listen, we'd love to hear the sheriff talk, and we're going to drag him in here at some point. But this is going to be lighter, uh, hopefully easier to listen to. That's what our goal is. It's going to be like eavesdropping on a really fun conversation. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. Um, so we, uh, I also, um, speaking of the sheriff, I, you know, the sheriff is, Sheriff Colteri is tremendously supportive yes. of everything that we do and we couldn't do any of it without him. Uh, you know, he understands, he may understand all the nuances of social media. I, I remember when we launched our Twitter account, I had to sit him down with the entire command staff and explain what a tweet was. <laughs> uh, and it, you take a bunch of, you know, 20, 30 plus year cops, put them in a room and explain what a tweet is and a hashtag. It was, you know, I, I just talked about it in therapy last week, so it's it's a thing. Uh, but but it, you know, he is on board. He he understands that he doesn't always understand, but but he's on board with it. So he trusts you. He trusts. Yeah. He trusts your well, he trusts yeah. all of us yeah. because you know, and it's funny. We sat down with him, explained, hey, this is what we want to do, and he said, he said, yeah, it's fine. He asked a lot of questions. He said he did say he did say to keep it in the lane. A shipping lane, something pretty broad, right? It could be a shipping lane. It could be a bowling lane. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really ask because I didn't really want to. Bumpers on, bumpers off. So, you know, if you're hearing this, it means that he listened to it and he thought we stayed in the lane. If you're not hearing this. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, so I just want to long, long and short, I want to thank the sheriff for supporting us and kind of letting us jump out, try new things and and investing in, in what we do here, social media, our public education programs, he really, we wouldn't be able to connect the way we do without, without him. And then of course, um, the other piece, the director of public relations, uh, my boss, uh, Jennifer Crockett, who literally we come to her with some of the craziest stuff. And yes, she's like, do. if we justify it, it makes sense and sounds fun. She's like, she's in, you know, but she's also like, well, we've got to sell the sheriff on it, but if mm-hmm. you got, she's always, she always has her back. So thank you, Jennifer. So, uh, we're really excited uh, about our first guest, our inaugural guest for the first ever episode of yes. the podcast. Um, you know, I, I referenced Laura's stories earlier that she was writing for Inside the Star, and, and there was a story that really kind of, we had some pretty incredible readership on it, and it was about a, uh, a John Doe uh, cold case that we had. So we said, you know what, we, you know, people like investigations, and they really like cold cases. Yes. So we were really excited to have uh, Detective Ron Chalmers uh, with us as our first guest from the uh, cold case unit, which is part of the robbery homicide unit. Um, but before um, we start interrogating Ron... Is it an interrogation? Yeah. All right. Right? Yeah. We, we can use methods? We have to... <laughs> 
Uh, Ashley has a, a question. So each guest, when we get them in here, we're Ashley's going to kind of ask a question that's kind of of all of us. We're all going to answer it, so we don't feel like the guest is singled out. Mm -hmm. But just kind of like an icebreaker question to kind of get the conversation going, and then we'll we'll kind of get into the good stuff. So Ashley, it's your and time break to the shine. Ice. You're the icebreaker, breaking the ice, the breaker right. of the ice. So, question today. I figure in the spirit of 1056, where the namesake is, um, best 10 coats, like favorite one. Do you have a favorite? Wow. Fun uh, one, like one you loved to say, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say 10-8 because it's, a, it's, a, it's in service, but it also is euphemistically means um, like getting ready to fight. If someone's getting 10-8, they're getting ready to go. So ready Thanks. for action. Also, it was the first one I could think of, and I was shocked by your question. And I took. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't want there to be silence. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So I jumped in. I didn't bring my list of uh... Ricky. Well, seeing as that I'm just a civilian, <laughs> I wouldn't know anything about that. No, um, gosh, I don't know. Um, I've got a list if you want to see. It would probably be the most outlandish one that would never be used because if I were a deputy, which you'd, if we talk more about that, you know exactly why I'm not. <laughs> uh, it would be something absurd. Um, but actually, how about we'll do this. How about I'll say my favorite 10 code is 10-4 good buddy and make that uh -huh. part of it. Yeah. Is that fair? Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, I talked about That's smoking abandoned already, so why not? Yeah. All, right. all right. And, Ron, and Ron, Ron, I know you haven't worked patrol with us, so you might not know all of our 10 codes as well as you know the Reno one, so feel free to use Reno 10 codes. I was going to admit that uh, although I took a test and passed it in my training, I don't mm -hmm. recall what the 10 codes are. And <laughs> interestingly enough, they're different here than they are in Reno. Uh, so my favorite was probably 1042, which was the end of shift. I mean, that's always oh, the nice. best. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Going home. Excited to head home. All right. I've got a little a funny tidbit of about 10 codes. Um, me and my sister, when we were kids and we would pretend to play something like where we had a radio and we'd say 10-4. Instead, my sister would like to say 10 or 10 or 9-er. <laughs> and I give her shit for it to this day. Like... <laughs> Instead of saying 10-4, that's what I say. That's awesome. So, 10 uh, or 10 or 9 or. A dumb little random thing. We get to it sounds really good. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds <laughs> legit. I mean, I wouldn't think Things don't have to mean it. anything. Yeah, they don't have to mean anything. All right. So good stuff. So just something kind of to, to get going. Uh, thank you, Ashley, for that. So Ron Chalmers retired in May 2018, 25 years with Reno. Just about 25 years. Were yep. you ever on Reno 911? Uh, no, but I had the shorts. <laughs> Did you wear them today? Did you get the boots? I had no boots, just the shorts. <laughs> okay. And um, yeah, that's, that's, it was not a good look. We're already off the rails. So, so are, we, are we in the lane though? Yeah. So, okay. so the show, obviously, is pretty, pretty popular, a parody of cops and whatnot. Did you guys get like a lot of, did people say that stuff to you all the time? Were there the jokes? I can only imagine. It's all we ever heard. There's a lot of special events in downtown Reno. Almost every weekend in the summer, there's some major event bringing people in. And when you work those events, all you ever heard was Reno 911, Reno 911. <laughs> and then I got out here and people are like, hey, do you guys really wear the shorts? And I, <laughs> I was like, are you serious? No. Are you joking? Because no, we don't wear the shorts. But. So, so is that like a... Where, so is that like a... Uh, 
how did the PD feel about that? Like, was that like a, hey, we're going to do this show? Like, do you have any insight into that? Or I mean, I've heard rumors. And mm-hmm. the story that I've heard is that uh, the producer of the show was up in Reno for one of the events, uh, was intoxicated and ended up in jail for jaywalking or something very stupid and was very angry with the Reno Police Department. And so that was why he chose to uh, name <sighs> his fictitious department after us. It's actually the Reno Sheriff's Office. Got it. So I typically say, well, actually, that was pretty spot on at the Reno Sheriff's Sheriff's office, not so much a Reno PD, but they would typically show the Reno police department cars and uh, everything right. was in Reno. And, and there were some very funny episodes, obviously. Oh yeah. Hilarious. What, what perfect revenge though. I love it. It, it was, it was, uh, we definitely, he got the last laugh for sure. Definitely. Definitely. All right. So, um, so you retire there in uh, May of 2018 uh, as a Sergeant, right? Yes. And then you, you come to Florida, you know, but let's, let's close the Reno chapter first and we'll talk about all the cool stuff we got going on here. So what did you do at Reno? Like 25 years, did you make your way around the agency? What sort of things were you involved in? I don't know if I like your characterization of make my way around the agency, but um, yes, no, I, I think I did uh, several different jobs there. I mean, uh, in Reno, everything starts with patrol. So you start off as a patrol officer. I worked about four years doing that. I went to my first detective assignment, which was an undercover plain clothes career criminal unit where we did surveillance of, of people who spent most of their life in prison doing crime. Uh, from there, I went to robbery homicide, and I spent about 10 and a half years as a detective and uh, super, uh, promoted out of that unit, went back to patrol because, again, you have to start back in patrol, and uh, went to our drug trafficking team, our sex trafficking team for a couple of years, uh, and which was very interesting. We did a lot of good work, I think. Uh, and then went back to robbery homicide where I retired as the sergeant. And then in between, um, our SWAT team is a collateral assignment. It's not a full-time assignment out there. And so I was on SWAT for about 11 years uh, during most of my time in robbery homicide. Very good. And so you mentioned uh, like sex trafficking, things like that. Obviously, I'm sure a bit of an issue out in Reno, uh, given the environment and stuff out there. What, you know, what, what did that, was that something you guys focused on specifically? Um, you know, what did that look like, that enforcement? No, it's a great question. We actually, so our primary function was kind of a street level drug team. Um, and then we were tasked with prostitution stings uh, in between. And then right as I was the sergeant, sex trafficking became more of a hot topic. I don't think it was a new problem, but it became much more aware in the community. And so uh, I had testified before the legislature down there. We changed some laws in the state of Nevada to bring a lot more attention to sex trafficking. Uh, did a lot of community presentations and, and brought a lot of light to it. Um, we did some good work. We recovered a 12-year-old girl that was being exploited by family members that wow. had come up mm-hmm. from Sacramento. And so we did, I think, a lot and made some pretty good impacts. And, and so I'm proud of the work that we did during that short time. That's good. Also, they're able to be responsive to, you know, some of the issues that are coming up that the community is concerned about. So that's that's good stuff. So 11 years in SWAT. Um, and then I have another note here that I really want to hear all about, uh, but within reason, because we're trying to keep this short. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, Ron is uh, the recipient of Reno PD's Medal of Honor. Uh, and he also uh, received a, uh, was one of 10, uh, top cops recognized by the national association of police organizations for a particular incident. So, um, first of all, that's, that's incredible. Um, I, I, as I understand it, you and your partner received the medal of honor from the police department and you're the only two living recipients. Correct. Which yes. is, 
just a crazy yeah. thing to think about. But talk us talk us through that. What what happened? What occurred? Sure, and it is it's a long story, and in a lot of ways, it's very unfortunate because I think we failed that day. But uh, it started off with just a simple traffic stop by a patrol officer who stopped an individual that was uh, you know, sort of an anti-government. Uh, he was an ex-felon, but still possessed firearms. He didn't believe the government could uh, regulate his living. Uh, so he chose not to sign the citation. He fled. As he was fleeing from the police department, he caused a major uh, traffic collision. Officers were dispatched to the registered owner's address. When they got there, they surrounded the house. Uh, he was yelling at them out the window and ultimately fired a couple of shots from a shotgun out the back door in their direction. From the vehicle? No, this oh. was he had already made it home oh, by the it. time okay. the officers had responded. Got it. So when they got to his house, his vehicle was parked in the driveway and they attempted contact. And then that's sort of what escalated things. Um, uh, obviously, the shots from the shotgun uh, ultimately led to them requesting SWAT, which is why I responded when I got there. Uh, I met with a bunch of people in the backyard. That's where he had fired the rounds from. Uh, they had directed me to replace one of the patrol officers. Um, but they told me they couldn't get me there. It was an open backyard uh, with a lot of vehicles, so you can envision what that looked like. Mm -hmm. But um, ultimately, they told me when he goes out to the front and starts yelling at the officers in the front, you're going to have to run across and replace that officer. That's a pretty common practice. We'll replace that inner perimeter of officers with SWAT officers. And as we were waiting, he became very agitated, started yelling. Uh, the people who were there when he fired the shotgun rounds through the back door uh, had told us and warned us that that's when he fired last time is when he was real agitated. Uh, so we confirmed nobody else was in the residence. They were pretty confident with that. And then about a, a few moments later, I heard a gunshot and I saw the officer clutch his chest that I was going to replace um, and uh, fall to the ground. Uh, I remember seeing blood come out, so I knew he had been hit, that it didn't uh, hit him in the vest or stop with a vest. Um, there were some officers on that side of the yard, but because of where the officer fell out in the open, uh, they were hesitant to go get him. So uh, my SWAT commander that I was with, uh, he decided that they were going to put some suppression fire into the residence. My partner and I would run across the open backyard and, and pull the officer from the line of fire, uh, which was great. And, and then as soon as they started firing, we started running. Next thing I knew, I got to the downed officer and I could see the holes through the back door and was expecting to, to really start taking gunfire at any moment. And uh, ultimately, I was able to, he was a larger man, uh, I was able to drag him to the back of the parked vehicles, get him some cover. Uh, they were able to use the board that was in the backyard to load him up as a gurney and start to evacuate him uh, further out. We had to pass some more open windows, which uh, ultimately I ended up putting some suppression fire into those open windows to keep his head down. And uh, the officer was transported to the hospital. Unfortunately, he did not survive. Mm -hmm. He passed. And uh, we had about another four-hour standoff with the suspect until ultimately we lit his house on fire and, and he surrendered and was ultimately convicted of first-degree murder of a police officer and died in prison. Um, but, uh, yeah, so it was, uh, it was a pretty rough day. Um, it was uh, definitely interesting. I found out later, I didn't realize it at the time, that uh, as we were running across, he opened fire with uh, an AK-47 on us. and. <sighs> fired 30, 40 shots as we went across the backyard and uh, the SWAT commander, he was seeing a muzzle flash. So he was putting rounds on the muzzle flash, but ultimately it ended up being a mirror that he was seeing. And so he was shooting in the wrong direction of where the suspect was. So he was, uh, had a pretty clear view of us as we went across the yard. That's incredible. I that mean, is, that really is <laughs> you know, amazing uh, heroism. Like what is going, like, first of all, <laughs> a simple traffic stop. I picked up that, you know, yeah. there, there's so much, uh, you know, people talk about traffic stops and, and, you know, routine traffic stops. And it's just kind of, that's an oxymoron all by itself. It's something very simple that 
happens millions of times a day, probably. And it can go so, so south. Like in that moment, and this is, this is just, it just boggles my mind because I'm, I'm not a cop, you know, but in that situation, like you're a human being. So there's that hesitation of if I go do this, this, you know, what is going through your mind when you're running toward, you know, not just the sound of gunfire, but like, you know, the source, like this, this officer's already down. He's obviously able to see where this officer is to aim. Re- I mean, what, what's going through your head? You know, in that situation, it actually was far easier, really. I had full faith and trust in uh, the SWAT officers that were there that were going to put the suppression fire into the residence. Uh, leaving the downed officer out in the open was just not an option. And so really, as soon as they said, hey, we're going to put some rounds in, you guys go across and get him out of there. And as soon as I heard the first shot, I truly don't even really recall anything until I was picking the officer up. And it was only at that time that I could see out of my corner of my eye, I could see the, the shotgun blast through the back door and thought, okay, well, here it comes. I'm going to, I'm going to take one here and hopefully it's nowhere good or it hits me in the vest or the helmet or wherever it goes. And once we got him to the back, it really, um, you know, there's just not a lot of thought process. I mean, I think that's the benefit of training. That's the reason why we train is so that you take away all that lag time and and you just react because you've practiced it and you've practiced it. and, And really that's what it was. It really was just reacting. And I would say the next four and a half hours, we were sort of, um, hunkered down we couldn't get out of the backyard nor did we want to give up that that area but uh that was the most challenging is trying to keep an eye on the windows make sure that he doesn't present himself while not exposing yourself and so that part was much more challenging and then hearing the news that he had passed at the hospital while we were still involved in the standoff those things were a little bit more challenging of course mentally but uh, really i mean that's why you prepare that's why you train wow that's I would say you had a pretty extensive, uh, very interesting career, and we're not going to talk about, I'm sure, the the crazy stories you may have from working in a sex trafficking unit and all those things. With a lot of casinos in the area. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, we're not even going to go there because this is I, a, I, I've heard some of the stories. I know they're not uh, appropriate for the show, be, so I won't even ask questions. to this here podcast. <laughs> uh, so let's kind of move on from Reno and, and start making our way this way. So you retire after 25 years. You know, was it just the right time for you to retire? Were you ready for a change? No, not at all. As a matter of fact, uh, Reno's a great community. The department was a great department. Uh, the only reason we really left when we left was my daughter wanted to go to school out here. Mm. Um, we knew we wanted to retire out here. We just weren't sure of the timing, but for her to get in-state tuition, and she was a sophomore in high school, and so to wait two more years uh, just didn't seem feasible. Then my youngest was going to be starting high school, and so it was just one of those we figured uh, that we would make the move as soon as we could. Uh, the Nevada system requires three years of um, your high three is what they base your retirement off of. Mm-hmm. And so it was important that I spent those three years in robbery homicide as a supervisor. But as soon as those three years were up, which is what the commitment was to the department, um, we decided it was time to move. But no, I really wasn't done with law enforcement, which is sort of how I ended up here. Right. So it was just a timing thing. It just worked out. And, you know, so was it always, we always looking at Tampa Bay? Where were you looking to, what was the plan? No, we really had no idea. Uh, We'd come out to Orlando on vacation every year. My kids had competitions in Orlando every year. And so we loved Florida. I really thought we'd move to Orlando. Uh, I remember playing with an alligator for the first time uh, during a trip to Orlando and, and thought, mm, I don't think I want to live near those things. So let's move to the salt water and <laughs> playing no. with an alligator. Well, 
you know, just why he was as interested in me as I was him. And so watching his movement and ultimately he came. I was hoping you're going to say you were like an animal kingdom or something. No, it was just an alligator. <laughs> oh, yeah, was, Wild alligator. Okay. Yeah, cause, right. Cause you don't have those in the freshwater in Reno, right? No, Dif- no. Different kind we of lakes. We don't have freshwater and there's in nothing, Reno, really. Oh, that's right. <laughs> yeah. It's the desert. So oh, right. the salt water, cause there's nothing at all that can eat you in salt water. And yeah. I tell that to people all the time, but yeah. it's a much bigger area. You're right. There's right. things to get away from you. Sharks can get away from you. Okay. I won't start. Don't, you know me. You know me and sharks and gators. I don't like. I don't want to be eaten by something. Um, well, I don't want to be eaten by it. I just they don't I'm come, prepared to take the risk. They don't come jumping into <laughs> our house. I'm not going to jump into their house. But all right. So um, ended up here. Weren't quite done, like you kind of said. So what what transpired to get you? And we're very glad you're here. But mm-hmm. but how'd you get here at the Pinellas County Sheriff's Office? Well, it's funny. I actually um, somehow got connected with uh, George Steffen, a retired chief deputy mm-hmm. on LinkedIn, and uh, started reaching out to him while I still worked in Reno. And uh, talked to him about maybe coming out here, not sure what I wanted to do. I knew I didn't want to work nights. I knew I didn't want to work weekends. Uh, I didn't want to be on call anymore. And so I started looking at the courthouse here and uh, they had a part-time position. So that really interested me until I found out you had to work a weekend day. And so mm. I thought that's not good for me. And <laughs> I remember uh, Chief Stefan actually saying, what about patrol, Ron? You know, we work uh, 12s and so you have every other weekend off. And I remember saying, well, Chief, when that turns into every weekend, give me a call back. He, he laughed and uh, said, okay, I got it. And so I went to the courthouse at first and uh, that was okay. Uh, it was a great schedule, but uh, it just wasn't really the work I wanted to do. I still really did want to help people and, and still be involved in, in something greater. And so uh, I made it two years there and then the cold case job opened up and I was fortunate that they considered me and uh, you know, the rest is history, as they say. Yeah, Absolutely like a, perfect position for you. <laughs> I was going to yeah. say, a natural fit. Um, so talk to us a little bit about the, the cold case unit and kind of how it's structured. Obviously, the cold case unit is not Detective Ron Chalmers. There's, there's other folks and of course, it's part of robbery homicide, which is part of you know, the hierarchy of investigative uh, components we have. But talk to us about you know, the background you have on. I know it's been back for a while it's something that, um, you know, we have some cold cases outstanding in, in Pinellas County that I, I think we can touch on. But, um, you know, it was kind of a, a renewed investment interest. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, you know, I don't know exactly when that uh, renewed investment came about. I know that uh, Mike Ring, who retired as a major here, uh, worked cold cases uh, throughout his career, even when he wasn't assigned to the cold case unit and did a lot of work. And uh, I was very impressed by his work. As a matter of fact, it was sort of disappointing to me when I went to the cold case unit. I expected there to be a lot of low-hanging fruit uh, like Reno, a lot of cases mm-hmm. that didn't get solved. Uh, you know, unfortunately, with volume, we had to move on to the next one. And I think there was some more work that could have been done on a lot of those cases. And so I expected the same here. And when I got here, I, I realized very quickly that a lot of detectives, a lot of very talented detectives spent a lot of time working those mm-hmm. cases. And, and there was not a lot of low-hanging fruit. So, um, but, you know, it's, it's remarkable to me f- coming from out west. Uh, police departments, sheriff's offices really don't have the resources for cold case units. Uh, most of them out west are through the district attorney's office. And so when I got here to see the commitment by the Pinellas County Sheriff's Office and by the sheriff specifically to cold cases and assigning, we have two full-time uh, detectives that work those. Uh, it really was very impressive to me that they're willing to make that commitment. And uh, it's uh, I almost go daily with noticing how much it means to the people in the community. When I get telephone calls from victims' families uh, or just people in the community who are friends with missing persons or victims, you know, the word I use all the time is hope. I I hear the hope. They talk about hope. And they're just so thankful that there's people that are still uh, concentrating on their cases that they they can pick up the phone and actually talk to. And I think that's incredible, uh, incredible service to the community. And and it's an incredible um, investment by the sheriff's department. Sure. So 
you know, first of all, you know, people associate cold cases with just homicides, which is obviously not the case. The, the particular, the one case recently that Laura wrote about was a John Doe case. But, you know, kind of ex- uh, briefly just touch on how does a, how does a, a, what makes a case a cold case? Well, typically, it's defined usually as a case that's gone unsolved for at least a year. The Pinellas County Sheriff's Office, the case remains with the original detective unless that detective leaves robbery homicide. And then at that point, it will transfer to the cold case unit. So if you have a detective who's got an unsolved homicide from five years ago but is still in the unit, they maintain possession of that case. And it wouldn't come to us until they finally uh, rotate out. Um, but you're right. Obviously, there are um, some sex battery cases that qualify for cold cases. If a weapon's involved, anything that still falls within the statute of limitations, homicides, missing persons, and unidentified uh, remains fall under our umbrella, if you will. Cool. And, and, and you know, there, there's so many details, obviously. Investigations are all about the details. So, you know, for instance, when you did come in and you're looking at kind of the, the fact that there wasn't any low-hanging fruit, you know, what is it? What, how do you pick a case to pick up? I mean, how many how many cold cases are there right now that are on your radar? Well, we currently have about 55 unsolved, well, I should say now 54 unsolved homicides. Um, we have a, a couple of uh, unsolved sex battery cases that still fall within the statute of limitations. We have about 34 missing persons. And then we have a couple of unidentified John Doe's that uh, most of them are homicide victims that we just have yet to identify. So how do you, like, where do you even start? Like you look at all this and you say, what is the lowest hanging fruit of what's here? Or how do you prioritize? Yeah. Yeah. And that is a challenge. And I was fortunate when I first came into cold case, uh, you know, we had the 1987 murder that we recently made an arrest in. And uh, the detective uh, before me, Chris Lyons, had already uh, received approval to start genealogy work on that case. So when I came in, he told me, hey, this case is going to go to genealogy, start getting caught up on that case, start reading it. Um, and then likewise, uh, my supervisor, Rich Redmond, came to me and said, hey, here's a missing person case that we think some more work could be done on. Would you look at that? And so those two cases, as, as crazy as it sounds, really consumed a lot of my time the first year I was in the unit. Um, and so in between that, you start getting telephone calls from people, um, whether they're family members asking questions. Uh, other detectives who were formerly in the unit calling and saying, hey, you know, here's this case, I think this and I think that. And, and so then all of a sudden I start looking into it and start reading it. Um, it's sort of what's kind of led me where I've where I've gone. Um, there's a, a private dive company or a gentleman really that does private dive work looking for missing people, looking for vehicles and bodies of water. And so he calls me once or twice a week. Uh, to talk about cars or ponds and coordinates on other missing persons cases with me and and is helping us look. And so it's just I sort of uh, am juggling several cases in the air at once. But really, you know, to look at the cases, you know, with such detail as I do, I can only really focus on a couple at a time so that I don't miss something. And especially because I didn't live these cases, I can tell you all about murders in Reno that I was out on for three or four days, five days. Because uh, I lived it and I remember it. Whereas these cases, you know, I'll read something and I, if I don't get back to it in a month, it, it's a little challenging to remember exactly. And so I'm, I'm learning to perfect my note taking mm. and, and learning to really... Combing through everything. Because, I mean, detectives take tremendous amount of over, ownership over their cases. And mm-hmm. especially when there's, you know, I mean, people do that work. And, and of course, tell me if I'm wrong, but, you know, you do that work because you want to bring closure to folks and, and you want to, you know bring that family justice and that person justice. So it becomes personal for, oh, absolutely. for folks. So it's got to be hard to also kind of leave a case, right, that somebody yeah. else is going to pick up. But I'm sure uh, 
past detectives, you know, that put their hands on some of these cases will be glad to know that, that you're working on them. So let's talk about, um, you know, the genetic genealogy piece, because that was kind of the crux of the article on the, the missing John Doe that Laura put together. And that was one of the most popular articles that we had in Inside the Star. We had so Ember. much commentary about that's, that. That's yes. why we're yeah. talking to Ron yeah. right now. So, um, Laura, let's do this. So just briefly kind of summarize the case, like what the case actually was. And then we'll kind of go backwards with Ron mm-hmm. instead of expecting him to walk us through the whole thing. Okay. So just the quick, huh. the quick version. So in uh, March 8th, 2016, um, scattered bones were found in the woods near the Bay Pines boat ramp. Um, just bones. There were two teeth, no fingerprints available. Uh, anthropology at, uh, at USF thought it was male, Caucasian, 60 years old, maybe between uh, 5'8 and 6'1. Cause of death undetermined. So um, you uploaded some DNA to CODIS, but there was no match, right? Correct. And uh, there were some surgical plates in the body, but weren't serialized, nothing you can get from that. Correct. Uh, you made a clay head, you made sketches of the, uh, of the possible appearance. No, the, the detectives before me. I okay, didn't, sorry, yeah, so sorry. I didn't do any of the work. <laughs> this is before your time. <laughs> you doing the work. So standing on the shoulders of giants. Right. That's it. <laughs> there it is. At, at, at some point you come in. There it is. And, uh, and, and where do you step in? So same thing. So, you know, it was one of those cases that I saw the clay head when I first walked into Robbery Homicide. Mm-hmm. Uh, the clay head had been sitting there on their uh, credenzas uh, since, like I said, I started. And so I knew about the case a little bit. I started looking at the case and I remember going through the photos and that's sort of what I do first. It's, it's a little challenging. I'm still sort of learning my way because I never worked cold cases before. I always worked fresh cases. Mm-hmm. And so really for me, I try to approach all these cases as if they were fresh. And right. so I start with the photographs and uh, start going through the scene just like I would if I were out on a call out and start looking for what stands out to me before I read anything. I, I think uh-huh. it's an important fact. If I read something, whether I want to or not, it sort of becomes ingrained in my memory. And then I adopt what somebody else saw. That's interesting. So, so you're almost doing your own investigation as if it was from, for sure. from the beginning. Yeah, for sure. And even, you know, in Reno with a cold case that I had, the one murder I didn't solve initially, um, I know people came in and looked at that afterwards. And I remember telling them, hey, listen, you know, don't, let me lead you down a path. My path has not solved this case. And so if I lead you down the path, you're likely going to end up with the same results mm-hmm. I did. I, you know, I want you to look at this from your own perspective in case, you know, I miss something. Yeah. It's not about ego. It's not about anything else. So look at it from your own perspective. Look at it uh, from your own investigative techniques and, and experiences and figure out what it is that I miss. And so I do that here. I'm not very concerned necessarily about what other people thought. So I'll look at the scene, I'll make my notes, I'll write things down, and then I'll start reading reports and seeing, you know, if I have questions remaining from what I saw at the scene. And so in this case, I started looking at the pictures and what really stood out to me was the the wristwatch that was uh, left and found at the scene with the uh, scattered bones. And it was just a brand I hadn't heard of before. And so I thought perhaps I could f- do some research on the watch. And so I remember, you know, looking for the sale of the watch, going through pawn shops and, and trying to see if somebody had pawned that watch and just doing a bunch of work on the watch. And ultimately it, it led nowhere. But later on, that became important when we finally did get a name. Hmm. That's... That's, that, that's all good stuff. Those details, know. you know. So uh, obviously, ultimately, you know, what cracked this case was the genetic genealogy uh, piece, which is relatively new. Um, you know, we we hear it. You know, we've heard it before. We you know we hear folks talking about it, but you know, the general public, it's it's really something new. So you know, their exposure to that is you know like twenty three and Me and, and Ancestry dot com, uh, but it's really an up and coming. Um, very much a mainstream technology to help solve some of these cases. So talk about, uh, if you can, just kind of a, a, 
the Cliff Notes version, explain uh, what that is, how that works, and of course, how it contributed to this case. Sure. Well, I mean, first and foremost, I guess it's important for people to understand that it, it's not really 23andMe or Ancestry, although that is two of the commercial businesses that uh, sell a genealogy product. For us to actually be able to see the results, those people have to consciously upload that into a DNA database, uh, either GEDmatch or Family Tree DNA are, are the two biggest that we search. And so people need to recognize that it's not really Big Brother. I mean, the people who are opting in, they have to make that conscious decision to opt in to allow law enforcement to see their results. Mm -hmm. And for me, I didn't know a lot about genealogy uh, when I first started in Gold Case. Uh, you know, I know the Golden State Killer was solved. That was uh, not far from Reno. And so I was aware of it. But what I was unaware of is I thought that it was the same DNA that we used in our criminal investigations. So, you know, if I go to a homicide scene and the suspect stabs the victim, but it cuts their own finger in the process and leaves a trail of blood walking out the door, and we collect that and we can come up with a DNA profile and we can enter that into CODIS and see if that matches. That's the criminal database. And so I assumed that the genealogy, we just took the DNA from the, the CODIS database and applied it to the genealogy somehow and, and magic, you know, came out. And, and I learned very quickly that's not what happens at all. So for genealogy, they're looking at a totally different area of the DNA than what we are typically looking at in the criminal setting. So it, it, the easiest way it was described to me is it's like comparing fingerprints to footprints comes from the same person. They're both ridge details, but there's no correlation. There's no communication between the two. And so the, what they're looking at for genealogy DNA is just a completely different area. And so the one hang up to genealogy that I have found is we have to have DNA extract. We have to have DNA that we can send to a different lab and have them process it for the genealogy type of DNA. And then we can upload that into the family tree or, or GED match and start looking for uh, family relatives. And so, I mean, there are some really specific details to genealogy that doesn't make it the magic bullet, of course, but it's a fantastic tool. And so ultimately what they do is, as I understand it, because I'm not a genealogist, but ultimately what they do is they turn around and they look at relatives and they can determine how distant a relative is based off of how many centimorgans they share with somebody. Centa what now? Centimorgans. Yeah, I love that word. Yes. I don't know exactly what it means, but I love saying it. You, you would like that word. <laughs> it sounds like a, uh, a measurement, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, centimeters, centimorgans, right. mm -hmm. something like that. But um, and ultimately, I guess uh, what I tell people all the time is that you and I, we all have about 7,000 centimorgans and we get half of that from our mother, half of that from our father. So therefore our children will have 3,500 centimorgans of mine and 3,500 from the mom. And then it just continues to get watered down by half with each generation in essence. Mm -hmm. And so they can look at that centimorgans. They can kind of come up with a, a general uh, relationship to the subject DNA. And so they look at that and they can build family trees and, uh, you know, in this particular case with the John Doe, I don't recall exactly, but I know it was more than 20 family trees that they built. And they're looking for intersections where the different family trees come together. And then ultimately they can kind of pinpoint at least possible subjects. And that's the thing about genealogy that people also need to understand is it's, it's not a forensic tool. It's uh, really a tip. These genealogists mm -hmm. look at the uh, genealogy results, and they can sit there and say, hey, we think it's on this line. Mm -hmm. Can you go get a target test? Reach out to the family, see if somebody in the family can give a sample so we can see if we're on the right side or on the wrong side. Or likewise, they can tell us, you know, hey, we think it's possibly this person. Can you go get family members' DNA to confirm, confirm it? So, it? And then that's where the evidentiary side in a criminal case comes in is, is we go get that DNA to confirm the identity on a missing person or unidentified like this. 
you know, there's not that concern as much, but we can go back and do the, the standard STR DNA testing to confirm what it is that they're seeing through genealogy. So it's very simple, very simple process. Yes, I understand yeah. completely, so, don't you? Know, you? But, but it's, it. it's interesting because, you know, I think that, uh, and I, I, I think you'll agree with this, you know, CSI and NCIS and all these shows have just really oversimplified mm -hmm. some of the work that has to be done. I mean, it's even people, you know, with fingerprints, you know, for example, people think it's like, oh, you just scan your fingerprint and then you put in the system, all the bleep bloops happen. And then all of a sudden, bam, there's a match, <laughs> right? But it's actually uh, here at the sheriff's office, it's people, you know, out at APHIS literally looking uh, at the, the ridge detail and the different little nuances of the fingerprint to, to make that connection. So it sounds like it's, it's similar with genealogy. You're just not putting it in a machine and, you know, it's not like on Jurassic Park with, you, you know, you get the blood out of the mosquito and then the little <laughs> cartoon. I mean, it's not that at all. It's very complicated. It is very which complicated. Is, which is what makes these cases, um, you know, all the more interesting. So with this particular John Doe, um, you submit the genealogy, uh, the DNA rather, excuse me, you, you submit the DNA and they kind of do their thing. How does that, how do we find our way to identifying this person through their process? So there were several steps. Uh, originally, it was actually a very low probability of solving it through Parabon Nano Labs. Um, they rank it on a one to five score, one being very likely it'll be solved and five not so likely. And uh, this came up before. So it really wasn't very good numbers for us. Um, was they, that because of the quality of the DNA or? No, just really because of the number of matches and the okay. distant matches that they had. You know, the closer they can get, obviously, the better it is. So they determine that after they get the sample and run it. Correct. Okay. And so then they see what the the top matches are and what right. distance that is to our subject, and then they can make a determination. And so in this case, we did not have very good numbers. Um, some, And then as people continue to upload, that changes, of course. And so somebody had uploaded uh, about six months before we actually made the identification, which got us closer. And so Parabon gave me about 20 last names that they were seen in the family tree. And so I went on to NamUs and, and uh, Missing Persons website, started running all those names, trying to find somebody who had been reported missing that might match up and, and still struck out. And so again, the case went cold until six months later when somebody new uploaded. And although it wasn't that close of a match, it just was a new family tree which helped them to really triangulate our subject. And then they were able to come up with who they thought the person was and identified and gave me a name. So wow. some of these cold cases and, and John Doe's are just one person submitting their DNA away from being solved. Oh, absolutely. Just, just the one right person. Between that and I understand too that the census records are always uh, about 50 years behind and so here ah. recently, I think it was what, the 1960 census was mm -hmm. recently released and apparently that's provided a lot more information for the genealogist as well um, and you know, I, I know they're excited in 10 years they'll release another one and hopefully that'll open some more doors as far as them, their ability to search because everything yeah. they do is public record searching. Yeah. I mean, they're not digging through anything that's not a public record. Right. So, and then this case, uh, if I remember right, this case was, you know, it was kind of, it was working its way, but then actually a new family member uploaded their DNA last year. Is that right? Correct. And then that was kind of the, that was the connection. Yep. And so, even though it really wasn't that close, it was just another family tree that helped them to complete that triangulation. And that was the one that really gave us the name that we were looking for. And then when I received the name and I started doing research on it, lo and behold, I find a photograph of that subject wearing the wristwatch that I had done so much research on, which really helped as far as the confirmation. I mean, that's just, that's just good old fashioned boots yeah. on the ground. Oh yeah. Police work right there. So you, you see so, that, you see, what is your reaction when you see that? Cause you know, you had, there was that moment that was like, this is it. 
Well, it was very exciting to see that, to know it's him. Obviously, I still wanted to confirm it through, you know, genetic uh, profile, find DNA from a family member and, and try to confirm it for him. But, uh, you know, I guess the perfectionist in me started looking at it and saying, okay, what else should I have done that could have identified this guy a year ago, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and so the happiness uh, of solving the case and figuring out who he was uh, dissipates relatively quickly. <laughs> and I started thinking, okay, shoot, what could I have done better? Could yeah. I have done this? Should I have done that? Now that I know what I know, what could we have done? And you perfectionist. Yeah. Making tell, the rest of us look bad. Tell, tell us a little bit about him. What was he like, uh, Robert Higgins? What was his story? Well, so he was a gentleman that uh, spent most of his time up in the Northeast. He had a family. Uh, we ultimately found his daughter, and uh, she provided a DNA sample, which confirmed his identity for us. Mm-hmm. But talking to her, it was a fairly sad story. He was an Air Force vet who uh, was living a normal life, obviously, you know, had mm-hmm. a child, had a girlfriend, and uh, it sounds like he struggled with some mental health issues. And one day his daughter said that uh, it seemed like things progressed. Uh, one day he just left, left oh. his girlfriend. Uh, she knew he had moved to Florida, but did not have a lot of contact with him. Um, she said he would call once every about 10 years. And uh, one time she got a, a kind of an awkward greeting card from him. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't her birthday or anything, but she said that really was the extent of her contact with him. And uh, she had some family out West that would talk to him a little more frequently every few years. But other than knowing he was in Florida, they didn't know much about him, which is why he was never reported missing, which is why I couldn't find him when I did the searches on NamUs. And he just uh, kind of lived a kind of a homeless lifestyle here while he struggled with, I think, some substance abuse and some mental health issues. And Mm -hmm. and uh, so really, it is a fairly tragic story to know that somebody, you know, has passed away seven years earlier and, and nobody's really looking for him. Yeah. It's, it's very sad. And he had died of natural causes. We think. I mean, it's very difficult to say. Obviously, you know, the medical examiner's office uh, did an evaluation and they can only do so much when you have skeletal remains. Mm-hmm. But I think based off of the um, heart condition that he had and some of the calls for service we had with him having heart issues, and as a matter of fact, the last contact we had with him, uh, the de- deputy specifically talked about the swelling of his ankles and, and him not looking well and, and his declining medical assistance. Um, I, you know, I, I feel fairly confident there was really no indication that this was a crime, but, you know, so much time had passed from when it occurred. It's it's a little challenging to say definitively, but I think all the evidence that we have leads to him having a heart issue. Okay. Wow. So not to go back a little bit, but um, you said that his daughter submitted um, DNA t- so you could confirm, but through genealogy, it was someone that was more distant. Correct, yes. No, she had not submitted her DNA for genealogy. Yeah. It wasn't until I called her, and I didn't even know that she was his daughter. Um, I started just doing research on the internet and came up with her name and number and, and called and started explaining why I was uh, calling her. And she was the one that said, hey, are you calling about you know Mr. Higgins? And I was like, yes, do you know him? She's like, yes, he's my father. So that was tough to, you know, have to break the news to her in that setting. But ultimately, she agreed to give me a sample so that we could do the, the one-to-one comparison and, and figure out and confirm his identity. It's wow. incredible. That's, yeah. that's good stuff. I mean, amazing work all around. It's a, it's yeah. a, you know, you know from, 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 from the first investigation to, uh, what was it, Deputy Valahi, mm-hmm. who, 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 so. who, had, who had taken the picture on the, on the, the FIR? Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah. He did a great Showing job. Showing his watch. That mm-hmm. was, yeah. So for our deputies listening out there, <laughs> document, document, document. Take you pictures know of everything. If, if Ron and his colleagues um, may need it. So um, need to wind down a little bit, but 
with that, I think we can touch on which there's been a lot of a lot of great media coverage about it. Yes. But we just had a an incredible uh, 1987 cold case that was solved: the uh, murder of uh, Opal Wheel. Did I say that right? I think so. Okay, yeah. perfect. Um, you know, I mean, you think. <laughs> 30, I'm not going to do math on the spot, but that's a long time ago, like 36 years. Mm-hmm. Is that right? See, I'm, I, I, I'm I, not gonna, I don't have enough I'm fingers. I remember hearing 36. Something 36. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was from 87. I can tell you that. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm a millennial. I, I, I can tell you. <laughs> it was 36 years tonight. Why didn't we ask the answer? Oh, wow. oh boy. Yeah, she was. Uh, we didn't even plan that. 36 years of the recording of this podcast. Yes. Wow. Wow. So um, that was a, it was a story that, that was really. Uh, a little bit of, you know, inside baseball, but, you know, mm-hmm. it was a story that we know was not a story. The case was, we, we knew we were close and we were kind of excited for kind of the, the rolling that out. Yeah, and then yeah. Internally, uh, we some were. of the documentation got posted online and bam, mm-hmm. we had to talk about it uh, sooner than we wanted to, but that's okay. That just happens sometimes. It's still and, a great case, you know, either way. We can talk about it now a we little talk, bit. We can talk about it now. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, th- so this was, um, at the time she was 82 years old. Is that right? Correct. Uh, and she was discovered, um, by a relative, I think her sister-in-law, sister-in-law. Yes. Uh, that discovered her. And I'm just going off of what I remember from watching mm-hmm. on the news. That's how I got information. Mm-hmm. Uh, discovered by her sister-in-law and, you know, mm-hmm. no immediate connection. So just kind of as we, as we wind down, kind of walk us through, and this was, I know something that a lot of folks did a lot of work on over the years. I mean, over the course of 36 years, they're going to, but how do you kind of step into this case and, and how did you pick this one up saying, Hey, this is one that, that is going to be of interest and something we might be able to do something with. Yeah. You know, and it really did start off in 1987. The deputies and the forensic investigators did a great job. They collected uh, hairs that were seen there on the scene uh, prior to DNA. DNA was not even a thought back then. Um, so they did a fantastic job. They did a lot of interviews. They did a lot of work on the case, and uh, they really worked it throughout um, again. And then you fast forward to 2002 when uh, Mike Ring had uh, worked these cold cases just because he cared about them and his interest in them and uh, looked at that and said, maybe we should send those hairs for DNA testing. And then ultimately we came up with a DNA profile in 2003 and didn't match anybody. And so it kind of continued uh, down that path. And when I first got the case, I started reading and, and I saw an opportunity to exclude a lot of people or hopefully identify somebody through DNA. And so I started uh, really uh, getting DNA swabs from everybody who'd been talked to throughout the past 35 years when I got it. Um, I, I went over to the medical examiner's office and obtained blood vials from people who'd passed away uh, that were named in there and sent their DNA in, knocked on a lot of doors and uh, collected DNA from people. And ultimately it, it all just struck out and, and nothing new. Um, but uh, again, I had sent the uh, DNA in for genealogy testing back in uh, 2020. And uh, again, we did not have real good numbers initially. It didn't look very positive initially. And, and then the right person uploaded and got us a little bit closer. And ultimately, uh, the genealogists were able to kind of pinpoint a few brothers that they thought was uh, likely the source of it. And uh, then again, the old fashioned investigative work started going. We did a lot of archive searching, started looking at a lot of old reports, uh, were able to exclude one brother pretty quickly and, and the other brother was deceased. And so we couldn't, uh, forensically ex- exclude him, but, uh, that kind of left us with one brother and, and, uh, that's sort of the path that we went down and, and were able to get a sample from him, a surreptitious sample. Um, you know, I mean, it's important. I'd like to hear more about that. <laughs> the surreptitious part. Yes. Right. I don't know Are that, we allowed to talk about that? I don't that? know what that word means. <laughs> Me either. I'm glad it's not Sneaky. Sneaky. <laughs> Sneaky. Yes. You used a ruse. I think that's what we would call... Uh, 
various investigative techniques. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, so, you know, it's important to know. I mean, from my perspective, if this person was innocent of it, right. I, the last thing we want to do is be intrusive into their life mm-hmm. and waiting for them to discard something and, and throw something away, pick it up, collect it, and, and see if the DNA matches or doesn't match, I think is a, a much better way of going about it. And if we could exclude him, if it wasn't him, we would have excluded him and he yeah, would could, never it, been the wife. It could go either way. It Correct. could go either way. True. But so. yes, uh, you know, the, everybody uh, likes the idea and it wasn't my idea that, uh, you know, some of our detectives decided to work with a, a detective up in Mississippi who owned a restaurant who said, hey, I'll give him a free meal. And so we constructed a flyer and waited for him to park in public and put that flyer on his windshield <laughs> offering a free meal. And uh, he took that free meal. And it's just beautiful. Yes. As soon as he <laughs> left, uh, they mailed me a, a spoon and fork that we still owe them. And uh, we're able to use that as one source of DNA. I have to imagine the people at FedEx, you know, screening the packages. They're just like, this Ron Chalmers guy, you get some weird stuff sent to him. I'm like, they have silverware in Florida. I don't understand. That's good stuff. I mean, and of course, I mean, and obviously it's not the first cold case you've solved, but I mean, one that's, you know, 36 years old, you know, with, with family that is, is still around, um, you know, that's gotta be really rewarding to be able to bring that in for a landing. So. It really is. I mean, it really truly was a team effort. I like to say, you know, I was just driving the bus when it pulled in the station, but, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the Florida department of law enforcement actually funded the testing. They were a huge oh. partner. They did most of the lab work and, uh, still, I mean, even before, before we had the genealogy results, uh, Melissa Suddeth over at FDLE, uh, she had uh, me send a bunch of property over to her. And you got to understand, DNA people are, are overworked. And so yeah. typically when you call a DNA person, uh, you know, they want the fewest amount of things that they can get to, mm-hmm. to keep it manageable. And Melissa, I remember talking to her and saying, hey, I want to send you this, 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 this. And she said, okay, why don't you send me this, this, this also? And it's, it's for the first time that I think I've ever had a DNA wow. person suggest I send more. More work right. to her. And so she was fantastic. FDLE was fantastic. Obviously, uh, Parabon did the genealogy work, and CC Moore specifically, who's a very well known genealogist, uh, did some phenomenal work uh, on that case. And, and it really, it really is truly a team effort. Wow. That's, that was just, I mean, that, you know, I've been here 10 years. We've had a couple other cold cases, but that was, that was just really incredible. Yeah. So kudos to you and, and everybody. And, and the team, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and like you said, I mean, it's not just him. You know, I like that driving the bus when it pulled into the station. <laughs> but, you know, it wouldn't have been possible without the diligence at the front end of it. It wouldn't be possible without the great documentation, which is a theme we heard from the other yes. John Doe case. And, you know, of course, all the people behind the scenes. And, you know, that's the thing that for for us, you know, when we're doing public education programs and making sure people know that we're not just a bunch of cops, right? It's not just deputies. There's support staff. There's forensic staff. A lot of folks that are involved in various technologies that kind of pull it all together and make it happen. So it was that was incredible. And and, uh, we're proud of of what you all accomplished and, and do every day because it's just really good stuff. Right. And of absolutely. course, you know, you have to throw a bone to the boss. I mean, yeah. his commitment to cold cases oh, and, and uh, allocating those resources, mm-hmm. this case could very easily still be unsolved mm-hmm. had, you know, those resources not been allocated and had somebody just tried to pick this up, you know, during their downtime, it's mm-hmm. very likely this case doesn't get solved. And, yeah. and you can't put a price on closure that you can bring and, and just knowing what happened. I can't imagine wondering, you know, all those years what actually happened. Yeah. So it's, it's just great all around. So, as we wrap up with Iran, we really appreciate you coming on. Uh, you mentioned that there are 54 now uh, cold cases. We have those posts on our website, by the way. 
Yeah, yeah. Is, so uh, public can go and, and, and look at the summaries of them. Go read about it. So uh, I guess with that, Ron, what, what do you want the public to know uh, about the work that you do uh, or, or anything they can do to help uh, with cold cases? Well, I think, you know, we've talked a lot about forensics. We've talked about the different sciences. But, you know, key to almost all of our cases is somebody out there who holds a piece of knowledge that knows something about the case. Mm-hmm. And so I would encourage anybody who thinks that they know something about a case or knows something but is hesitant for whatever reason to come forward, that they pick up the phone and make that telephone call and, and allow us to at least obtain the information and we can figure out, you know, the best way to navigate that information and, and determine whether or not that information is good information or bad information. As I've said, you know, it's it's our responsibility to vet these cases, and we try very, very hard to do it uh, as uh, non-intrusive as possible. And, and so I would really just encourage that relationship with the community and, and the folks in this community to come forward with that information that they may have. Very good. Easy enough. Yeah. So anybody have anything else for Ron while we have him? Pretty good? I think we're good. Because we could, this could be a two or three episode podcast. I mean, we just keep talking. If you feel like it, you can talk about a couple of the other cases that you're working on now that you told me just briefly. Um, the cinder block, the, uh, oh, the yeah. yeah. So we have a, uh, an unidentified woman that we believe is in her mid twenties, mm-hmm. uh, that was found tied to a cinder block and floating in uh, Tampa Bay near the Oldsmar power station in 1961, March 4th of 1961. And she's been yet to be identified. And uh, so we're starting, again, that how do I get these cases? I had a family call me from Georgia who said, hey, our mom disappeared in 1958. We know she went to Florida. And after that, we don't know where she went. And this description is relatively similar to her. And could it be our mom? And so that's what, again, I picked up the case, started reading through the case and, and saw some things that could be done. And with our uh, success with genealogy, I've talked to the administration about potentially sending her case in for genealogy work as well, if we can get some more DNA extract. And so that's sort of how we're going with that. And uh, But yeah, it's a very interesting case, you know, yeah. 60, over 60 years, and, and we don't have a name to go along with a victim. And, and so what, that's sad. What is the oldest case? On our books. 1955. We have a okay. homicide from 1955. And, uh, you know, there's a very strong suspect in that case who's deceased. Huh? And uh, the detectives before me have done a lot of work on it. And uh, it's interesting to read. It's, you know, the state attorney and the sheriff were out there knocking on doors themselves in 1955. Wow. And mm. so it's very, very interesting to read and, and hear them talking about tire impressions and and other uh, different forms of science that were paramount then that, you know, are, are not yeah. necessarily as common today. So it's very interesting to go back and oh, look. Yeah. Wow. So even back to 1955, we were pretty thorough yeah. talking about tire impressions. Oh, absolutely. Would, That's would, good to know. Would a case theoretically stay open forever? Or? Yes. Okay. Yes, absolutely. We have no desires to, to close any of these cases. Obviously, you know, we, we want to invest our time on cases that uh, are, are more likely to be solved and have mm-hmm. the ability to be more solved. And so sometimes that's a balance of looking at more recent cases. But, you know, the downside from a cold case perspective is, you know, a case from 2010 has likely been looked at with modern uh, technology eyes. Right. A case from 1987 may not. So there's sort of a balance there. Okay. Good stuff. Well, based on that, I think we're going to have you back because it sounds like you're going to crack another pretty crazy case here maybe the next couple of years. A lot of good information yeah. out there. So, I we, hope so we appreciate you taking the time to come chat with yes, us and, thank and you very much. for being our inaugural guest. Um, thank I you mean, for it's, me. it's kind of an honor to be the first one, mm-hmm. but we're honored that you, you chose to come talk to us because uh, it's kind of a new thing. And, you know, historically, cops try to hide. They don't want to talk about, uh, you know, some of the good stuff, but it's all good stuff. Uh, Ron, so we appreciate your time and thank you for coming in. Ron Chalmers, everybody.
So uh, thanks to everybody for listening for to our first ever episode of 56. Uh, like I said, we you're going to hear more from us. We're going to do this a lot more, bring some folks in. Uh, I don't know who we're working on next, but I know it's going to be good. Try we to have keep some it. really good ideas. We have some great ideas. So we'll see. Um, if there's anything in particular that, that you want to hear about or you have questions about or anything like that, um, we do have an email address and it is let's 56 at pcsonet.com. Get it? I like that. That's 56. Yeah. 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 So L-E-T-S-5-6 at at pcsonet.com. We did that together. You want to sing it? We'll have (laughs) have to rehearse a little bit. Yeah. Next next episode. Next Next episode. episode. Yeah, for the next one. And we really want to hear from you. We want to hear what you think about the show. We want to hear about your ideas for for future shows. And we could get to want compliments? No criticism? I mean, unless it's very delicate, constructive. Constructive, constructive criticism. Yeah. Um, And then, uh, yeah, we'll, you know, like at the point where we'll we'll take questions for our upcoming guests, maybe something like that. So like again, thanks for listening. Uh, if you're not already, please follow us on all of the major platforms. Follow Ashley more specifically. Yes. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, YouTube, Nextdoor. Did I get all of them? I think so. I think so. That was actually pretty good. I didn't plan yeah. to do that, but I did it. All right. Thanks, everybody. Take care. Thanks. Bye.